Genesis. Please uh, turn with me in Scripture. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. Or really, perhaps not. From verse 20. Okay, now with the um, the salvage operation that has been uh, going on in Italy for the past week, the, the story of the Costa Concordia has been back in the news, isn't it? And as time passes since that uh, disaster, uh, so also we kind of become, I guess, more familiar with some of the stories of the people who were on board that ship. Um, pretty sure everyone here is familiar with the story of the captain. Um, captain what was his name? Captain Chetino, who uh, responded to that disaster how you know by apparently abandoning ship and heading for shore. But we've also had sort of entirely different accounts, haven't we? You know, it's not all been. Doom and gloom. For example, there was a, the story of this musician on board whose name was Giuseppe Girolamo. Now, this guy, he gave up his space on a life raft. He gave it up for a child. And he, as a result, lost his life. So it's a heroic reaction, if, if you like. So, what we have, I guess, are polar opposite responses to a disaster, to a problem. And in some ways, that's what we've got in front of us this morning, don't we, in Genesis chapter 9? Because we've got uh, a disaster, we've got a problem that we read about, and that is Noah's sin. And then we also have two very, very different responses to that disaster, don't we? We've got the reaction of Ham to this problem, this disaster. And then we've got the reaction of Shem and Japheth too. Polar opposite responses. So just now in our short time together, what we'll do is we will examine this portion of scripture in a little more detail. And in order to do that, what we'll do is we will focus on the characters that are involved in this narrative. The characters will make up the headings of the sermon, if you like. So let's not beat around the bush. Let's get to it, and let's consider our first point. Let's consider our first uh, character. Let's consider Noah. Noah's excess. Noah's excess. Now, if you can, if you can cast your mind back to last week, and to remember what we looked at there, God's covenant with Noah. If you can do that, you remember that Scripture encourages us to think about Noah, to picture Noah as a, a second Adam. Do you remember that? You know, there was that commission that God gives Noah is very similar to the commission that, that God gave Adam. Noah is a, a second Adam. And, and do you know what we see here? We see a, a continuation of that theme. 
Because get this. Hear this. Think about this. As Adam went from the high point of creation to the fall, and he did so how? He did so through consuming forbidden fruit. Well, think about Noah. Noah here goes from the the high point of a recreated earth, and he goes to the shame and humiliation of sin here. And how does that happen? It happens through the grape, doesn't it? It's the fruit that leads to his downfall. And so, just as we start out with this, the initial point of this section is very, very clear here. You know, it's saying, Genesis 9.18, it's saying, okay, there might be a second Adam. You know, this new Adam. And the world itself might be renewed and almost sort of reconstituted. But guess what? One thing does not change. One thing does not alter. The inclination of man's heart is still evil all the time. So the sort of initial thing here is that after the flood, there is still this this sort of ongoing sin. Sin is still a reality after the flood. But I'm sure you'd agree, that's a bit general. Let's think about the specifics here. And let's think about Noah's drunkenness. His drunkenness. And let's consider three things just now. Very brief things about drunkenness that we learn. One. Ready? Scripture does not forbid the drinking of alcohol. Scripture does not forbid the drinking of alcohol. Because you see, look, look how the section begins. Um, I doubt there's many farmers here this morning. But if they were, they might be intrigued by this bit here. Because what we've got at the beginning of the section is almost like a, a step forward in agriculture, don't we? You know, Noah has kind of come out of the ship, he's come out of the ark, and yes, we've seen that he bows before God. But then what does he do? He plants a vineyard. He, he, he grows vines. God then blesses that. It produces grapes. It's, it's made into wine. And the important thing is that this is not condemned. This growing of wine is not condemned in any way in this passage. And indeed, see, when we tie that up with the rest of Scripture, do you know what we find? We find that not only is the drinking of alcohol not condemned in Scripture, we find that sometimes and in places, Scripture recommends recommends the drinking of alcohol. Now think about that. Think about Paul to Timothy. What does Paul say to Timothy? He says, stop drinking only water. Drink a little wine. You know, we're saying, is, does the Bible forbid, uh, forbid drinking wine? Well, what about Psalm 104? Wine gladdens the heart of man. It's quite, quite clear in Scripture that 
The Bible does not forbid the drinking of alcohol. But I will stand in front of you and tear my hair and my beard out with frustration if that is the only thing that you go home with today, you know? If you go home and say, do you know what the minister said? The minister said it's okay to drink booze. I will be most frustrated because there is another side to this coin, isn't there? The second thing, you know, scripture might not forbid drinking, but scripture does condemn, get this, scripture does condemn excessive consumption of alcohol. Excessive, because, you know, think about Noah here. You know, Noah is not having a nice glass of red with a meal. He abuses the gift, doesn't he? He drinks too much and he gets drunk. But you might want to argue with that. You know, you might want to say to me, you know, yeah, it's okay, we get it that Noah gets drunk, but Genesis 9, this section of scripture, doesn't spell out any sort of disapproval. Did you notice that? You know, you, you might argue that there isn't any sort of criticism of Noah's drunkenness in this section of scripture. But I tell you this, I would argue with you on that. Because both the abruptiveness of the statement made about Noah, and also the absence of the voice of God in this section, both of those things point to a sense of, you know, real, divine displeasure at Noah's drinking. And when we see that in the sort of, in light of the holistic teaching of Scripture, What we see is that, yeah, the Bible is clear in allowing alcohol. But the Bible is even more definite in its prohibition of drinking to excess. Now, do you accept that, folks? Do you agree with me that that's the Bible's standpoint? That the Bible condemns drunkenness. You're doubting it. Listen to this. Isaiah 5 says, Woe to those who are champions of drinking. Proverbs 21, Whoever loves wine will never be rich. Proverbs 23, get this, Do not join those who drink too much wine. Hosea 4, it goes on, to parallel drinking with prostitution. And there are innumerable other examples. I could go on, but I'm pretty sure we all in this room get the point. Scripture condemns the excessive consumption of alcohol. So we're allowed to drink, but not to excess third thing, and this is, I guess, this is the most pressing point here. In Genesis 9, God shows us that drunkenness has consequences. Doesn't it? Drunkenness has consequences. I mean, I don't know what you think about 
this portion of scripture that we've read together. I find it a really depressing, or I found it a very depressing portion of scripture. Now think about it, you've got this, this great righteous man of God, Noah. Don't you? You know, he's the hero, or he has been the hero of the last couple of chapters. And now look at the nick of him. Look at the state of him. He's lying in this drunken stupor. He's lying naked in his tent. The point is it's depressing because it shows us that drunkenness has led to an unseemly situation. Unseemly. And that's the sort of connection that the rest of the scripture, the rest of scripture makes. That drunkenness leads to immoral, inappropriate situations. You know, think about Lot. Well, he does. He gets drunk and he sleeps with his daughters. You know, think about Habakkuk too. Drunkenness there is again equated with nakedness and perversion. You want a New Testament example? Think about what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He warns that drinking in excess leads to debauchery. It leads to debauchery. Now, folks, surely all of that is a warning to us this morning, isn't it? Now, surely that is a warning particularly to the young people here. Are you listening to this, young people? You know, Scripture tells us to Avoid drunkenness. It tells us that drunkenness will lead to immorality, to, to unsuitable behavior. So I'm going to ask you a kind of obvious question, especially to the young people. Are you drinking too much? Are you drinking too much? You know, have you got that sort of, that internal debate going on that so many sort of young people have? You know the internal debate. How much should I drink? Two drinks? Fine. Three drinks? Maybe. Four drinks? Not so much. Is that something that occupies your mind? Well, if it is... You are drinking too much. You are drinking too much. You know, if we are trying to get to that line of what is unsuitable, if we're trying to get as close as possible to that line, if we're trying to get to the the line almost of unholiness, the line of what is unacceptable to God without getting over it, if that's what's occupying us, then that reveals a heart that is not right with God. And I'd say to everyone here, you know, I know that some of you are drinking too much. And so I would say, today is the day to stop. Today is the day to stop excessive drinking. Through the power of God, Through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
you can stop. And so I would appeal to you through the words of 1 Samuel 1. How long will you keep getting drunk? Get rid. Get rid of your wine. Okay, folks. Let's jump aboard the Costa Concordia once again. We've seen the disaster. We've seen Noah's sin, his drunkenness. Let's consider the captain for a moment. Let's consider the wrong or a wrong reaction to this disaster. Let's think about Ham. Okay, he's our second character. Folks, let's consider Ham's error. Ham's error. Now, what was Ham's error? What did he do? Well, we're told, verse 22, that Ham saw his father's nakedness. Ham saw his father's nakedness. Now, the word saw there, it doesn't mean that he sort of glanced at his father's nakedness. It means that Ham went in deliberately to look at his father and to take delight in his father's dishonor. Not just that. He didn't just see. He told, didn't he? He goes in, then he comes back out, and he publicizes what he says. He speaks to his brothers about it. He draws attention to his father's state. Ham does his best to humiliate his dad. And look at the consequences of that. Did you see that at the end of the section? Did you see what happened to Ham? You know, Ham gets a metaphorical battering at the end of this, doesn't he? He gets a beating. Because Noah wakes up from his wine and he curses Ham. And he sort of pours out all his fury on Ham. No, that's not right, is it? Hang on a minute. That isn't what happens. Look what happens. Noah doesn't curse Ham. What does Noah do? Noah curses Ham's son, Canaan. And what's that all about? Why does Noah wake up from his drunkenness? Why does he curse Ham's son and not Ham? Well, it's both a severe but a suitable punishment, isn't it? Think about it. It's, it's severe. This is Ham's son we're talking about. This is the thing that means most in the world to Ham. It's a very severe punishment that's meted out against Ham. But it's suitable too, isn't it? Do you see how suitable it is? You know, Noah has been dishonored by his son, Ham. And so what's the fitting punishment? The fitting punishment is that Ham, Ham's son, Canaan, is cursed. It's severe, but it's suitable. But if, this morning, folks, if we're going to apply this, and if we're going to take this what might seem kind of odd situation of Ham seeing his father's nakedness, if we're going to apply that, then we've really got to understand why this was such a serious thing that Ham did. Are you sitting there kind of thinking, 
Well, to be honest, it doesn't seem all that bad. You know? Ham goes in and sees his dad's naked body and he comes out and he has a laugh about it with his brothers. That doesn't seem... Are you thinking that? If you are, I can understand that. You know, because we in the West, you know, for the Western mind, this seems rather unusual. You know, we certainly in, in the UK, we have strayed so far away from the, the, the biblical command to, to honour our fathers and our mothers that this situation with Ham, it seems bizarre, doesn't it? It seems almost alien. But I tell you this, if we are going to apply this, then that's what we've got to see. That this is the important thing. That Ham dishonoured his father. Please see that as the important thing. Ham dishonoured his father. So I'll ask you this. Folks, how is your um, family dynamic these days? You know, your home life. How is that? In your home life, is there a sort of healthy respect for your elders? Is there? I see some of the young people smile a wee bit at that. But in all honesty, are you honouring your father and your mother? In fact, scrap that. Let me be a wee bit more specific here. Please hear this. Respect for parents must begin with parents. Respect for parents must begin with parents. What what does that mean? Well, if if we want our kids to respect us, it is firstly our responsibility as parents to teach them that from a very early age. You know, we are to, as parents, instill discipline in our children, aren't we? We are to teach them biblical values, but also, and this is the important thing, we are to show them a healthy, scriptural, family dynamic. Even as I say that, you know, my, my heart sinks because I, I, I know I know how difficult that is but regardless of how difficult it is folks we have to work harder at honouring and gaining honour from our children because what do we see with Ham? Well, we see that if we don't do that not only is that going to affect us if we don't do it it's going to have consequences for the next generation too. So Ham's error is simple. Ham dishonoured his father. He dishonoured his father. Okay. For this congregation, uh, more than any other congregation that I have ever visited or been in, Language is a problem. Or language is an issue. There are 
So many people here for whom English is not their, their first language. Some would argue that I am one of those people uh, being a Scotsman. Um, and believe it or not, what I try to do uh, when I'm preaching here is I try to adjust, not, not the sermon necessarily, but I try to adjust the sermon headings so that they don't have any sort of uh, elaborate or, let's say, technical jargon or technical terms in the heading sermons. Well, I'll tell you this. I've resisted that temptation this morning. And in this, our very final point, there might be a word here that's not familiar to you. But if it isn't familiar, I would still say, please stick with me, because the word will be explained. So we've seen Noah's excess, and we've seen Ham's error. Let's conclude with Shem and Japheth's, you ready for the word? Shem and Japheth's expiation. Shem and Japheth's expiation. Now, their response to the disaster is the polar opposite of Ham's, isn't it? It's it's totally different to how Ham responded to Noah's nakedness. Now, what did Shem and Japheth do? Did you see it? They take a garment, and it's the word for a sort of outer cloak that sometimes gave warmth at night. They take a garment and they cover their dad. But not just that. There's emphasis in scripture upon the manner in which they do that. Because they walk in backwards, don't they? We're told that twice. Picture it, please. There's the tent. They walk in backwards with this cloak. And in as simple way as possible, they try and cover their father's dishonor. They try and cover up his sin. Now... We're going to finish here. And we're going to finish by considering Shem and Japheth's actions in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, consider this, and I tell you, I have been bursting to Share this all week. Consider this. Consider that Shem and Japheth's actions here, they foreshadow what Jesus Christ has done for his people. You see, in dying on the cross, in facing the wrath of God, in rising again, what has Jesus Christ done? For us as people. What has he done? He has atoned for sin. Yes? That's the word that we would use. That Jesus Christ has atoned for sin. Now get this. The word atone. It comes from a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word to cover over. To cover the word for atone is the very same word that is used here 
in Genesis chapter 9. In his death and resurrection, what has Christ done? He has hidden our sin. He has hidden it forever from God. He has expiated. He has made an amends and covered our sin. Now think about that. Think about the parallels with Genesis 9. Follow me here. What do Shem and Japheth do? Well, they take it upon themselves to deal with wickedness and sin, don't they? Just as Jesus Christ has done. What else do they do? They acknowledge this sin of Noah, but without looking upon it and becoming defiled themselves. Just as Jesus Christ took our sin, but without himself becoming tarnished. And then the last thing. Look at this. Look at what the covering of sin leads to here. It leads to them being honoured by their father. Look at the words. It says, may God extend the territory of Japheth. It leads to the expansion of their kingdom. Friends, because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of the fact that he has covered our sin, the Father has promised to extend his kingdom. It will be a kingdom that stretches from sea to sea and from one end of the universe to the other. It will see all nations gathered around him. You know, there will be faces from Africa. There will be faces from Asia. There will be people from Britain and Brazil. There will be a multitude gathered around that golden throne. And do you know what? We will bow before him. And do you know what? We will sing to him. Or people will we sing. We will sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We will praise the risen and exalted Christ. Why? Because he has covered over our sin. It is atoned for. My friends, this morning, there are only two postures that you can be in. Two postures. You can either lie this morning in shame and dishonor with your sin exposed before God. That can be you. Or you can lie today with Jesus Christ as your coverer and Jesus Christ as your covering. If that is you, then praise the Lamb of God for he has atoned for your sin. Let's pray.